0: Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matteries. And before I get started with the podcast, I'd just like to take care of the usual housekeeping. First of all, if you would like to help support the podcast, you can always do so on a per episode basis through Patreon or with a one time donation through PayPal at disasterarea at mail, not Gmail, but mail. You can also keep up with any news or links through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe through iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. And tell your friends, share the disaster and misery with everybody you know. I would also like to give a fair warning before this episode starts, there is a little bit of road construction down the street from me, so if there's ever some loud noises, or if you perhaps hear my cat yowling in the background for attention, that's what's going on here today. (laughs) That's probably the last bit of light humor we're going to have all hour. Secondly... As per usual usual with episodes regarding mass shootings, I will not be using the name of the shooter in this episode, or at least as little as possible. If you'd like to know his name, you can certainly find it in the source materials. And finally, I would like to issue a series of trigger warnings for this episode. This episode not only features descriptions of violence, it also features the deaths of children. There will also be a very detailed description of a police video in great detail, in, in, in great detail at a certain point in this episode. And I'm going to be warning ahead of time for that in case you want to skip that sort of thing. So that way you can skip ahead three or four minutes and you should be good to go. With all of that taken care of, I would like to thank you all for listening as per always. and. Welcome to Disaster Area. <music> Episode 39, The San Isidro McDonald's Massacre, July 18th, 1984, 21 deceased, 19 injured. In the 1993 movie Falling Down, Michael Douglas' character is an unemployed defense worker who just wants to get home for his daughter's birthday. But at the beginning of the movie, he snaps. It's not some disastrous event which triggers him, it's just a typical Los Angeles traffic jam. As he wanders through Los Angeles, confronting with growing frustration the negative changes in the world around him, he collects newer and bigger weapons with every person he encounters, like some incredibly lucky video game character. At a certain point, he enters a Whammy Burger, a thinly veiled reference to a certain popular fast food chain. Douglas's character doesn't enter with the intention of harming anyone. He just wants to order off the breakfast menu at 11.35 a.m. When he can't get what he wants, he whips out an automatic weapon from the leather bag containing his gathered arsenal. He causes no physical harm except to a few ceiling tiles. In the movie, it plays almost as a joke, or as close to a joke as the character gets. But it had only been nine years since a man much like Douglas's character, a bit nerdy, wearing glasses, carrying a bag loaded with guns and ammunition, strode into a California McDonald's. And falling down, Douglas gets what he wants, albeit a pathetic version of what the restaurant advertises, without anyone coming to any harm there. The ending of the real-life incident was somewhat different. On the other side of the Tijuana border crossing is the community of San Isidro, a section of the larger California city of San Diego. It had been annexed by San Diego in 1957 and they would try to reverse the decision 16 years later, but the measure failed and San Ysidro remained an important part of the city of San Diego. Police would later describe San Isidro as a nice community of about 25,000 people. It was not the fanciest place in the world, not the richest, not exactly free of crime, but the police would have good things to say in interviews and documentaries on what happened later. The worst thing they had to say about the city was that it had a drug problem, primarily heroin, but given its proximity to the border, that wasn't really surprising, and they handled it well enough. Mexicans and those of Mexican descent were the majority in San Isidro. Spanish language signs and businesses were everywhere in the area, and many of those who were about to be involved in a horrific tragedy didn't even speak English. But it created a sense of community which extended throughout San Isidro and in some ways across the border into Tijuana as well. Sometimes, family and friends who lived across the border from one another would meet for the day to go shopping, hang out, or perhaps get a bite to eat. In 1984, a line of businesses existed on a long strip of land between Highway 5 and San Isidro Boulevard, roads which ran parallel to one another north to south. Yum Yum Donuts, the post office, the McDonald's, all lined up like soldiers between the major highway and the main boulevard. Even today, as you head south toward the border on San Ysidro Boulevard, you'll pass a row of businesses on your right. A Chinese restaurant, a pizza place, a jack-in-the-box. You certainly won't starve on your way to the Mexican border. Now, July 18th 1984 was exactly the sort of warm, sunny summer day one might expect in California. With highs expected to reach the 80s, the beach beckoned. It was a Wednesday in the middle of the summer, and while kids were off for the summer and freely roaming the neighborhoods for hours like you could still do in the 1980s, people still had to go to work. Unless, of course, you didn't have a job. Albert Laos thought about skipping his shift at the McDonald's on San Isidro Boulevard a mile from the border crossing. He wanted to go to the beach with his buddies, and really, who could blame him? But at the last minute he decided it was better to be responsible and just get it over with. Paulina Aquino Lopez felt the same way about her shift, but for a different reason. She had a terrible headache, and she would have preferred to stay home and rest. But her sister persuaded her she should go, since she'd only just started working there. Meanwhile, one unemployed man had something he had to take care of. His him, he, his wife, and their two daughters headed to the courthouse in Claremont so he could appeal a minor traffic ticket. They signed in bright and early, around 8 o'clock or 8.30, I've seen different uh, times for that, but there were a lot of cases to go through, and by the time it got to this man's case, he was the last one in the courtroom. It only took a three-hour wait. According to the judge, he argued his case for quite a long time for such a minor infraction. The judge usually wasn't known to go soft on traffic violators, but this guy persuaded him. He waived the $75 fine and let the guy off with a warning. The man left the courtroom in a better mood. He got his wife and daughters, and the four of them, presumably hungry after that long wait, went to the McDonald's across the street from the courthouse for lunch. After their lunch, the family spontaneously decided to make a stop at the San Diego Zoo. While their their two daughters, ages 10 and 12, bounded from one animal enclosure to the other, their parents spoke about the husband's recent struggles. Three days earlier, he had told his wife, Etna, that he felt odd, different. He thought he might be in the middle of a mental break. At 10 a.m. on July 17th, the day before this, he had called the San Isidro Health Center, a local clinic which covered mental health. He was calm and rational on the phone, but he still expressed concerns about his mental stability and requested an appointment. The receptionist asked five questions they normally ask all new callers to assess their situation and just how urgent it was. The man answered no to all of those questions. What he did not tell her was that he had, at one point, been on Valium, and that he had no access to the Valium at that particular moment. Politely, the receptionist took down his information and said he would receive a call in the next few hours. So he waited by the phone, and waited, and waited. But no one called back that day. There was a reason for it, one which he wasn't privy to. Given his answers to the questions she asked and his even-handed demeanor, the receptionist marked his situation as a, quote, non-crisis, which meant he'd receive a call back in more like 48 hours, not the one or two hours the receptionist indicated. She also misspelled his last name. That certainly couldn't have helped. When he realized no one would call back, he angrily stormed from the apartment and rode off on his motorcycle. He returned an hour later in a much better mood. No one knew where he went. He ate dinner with his family. He sat on the couch and watched a movie with his wife. He didn't really seem troubled at all. At the zoo the next day, however, his frustrations reared their ugly head again. He said that since the mental health clinic called back had not called back, his life was pretty much over. Well, society had its chance, he muttered. His wife didn't call him out. He said strange things like this all the time just to get her riled up, according to her. They returned home after that. The kids hung out, and one of them had a babysitting job coming up that afternoon. Etna tidied up the kitchen. At one point, one of her daughters walked into the kitchen. Dad's playing with his ammo, she said. Etna might have thought it was strange, but she wasn't worried. Her husband was strange, and he had a great deal of weaponry, as well as plenty of ammunition for each of his weapons. Playing with his ammo, it really didn't mean anything. At about 2.30 p.m., Etna lay on her bed, resting after such a long and busy day. Her husband walked into the room. He changed his clothes. He now wore a maroon shirt, camouflage pants, white sneakers with red stripes on the side and sunglasses. I want to kiss you goodbye, he said. Goodbye? A kiss? She let him, but it was an odd gesture. He just wasn't that sort of affectionate husband. He did so, and before she stepped he stepped away, she said, Wait, I want to kiss you too. She had no idea where he was going, so as she went he went to leave, she asked where he was off to. I'm going hunting humans, he said. Again, more weirdness. He could say such strange things sometimes, but he didn't always mean them. He could be violent, though. She knew that much. She'd once called the authorities on him for, quote, messing up her jaw. But she'd quickly learned a trick to sue the savage beast. Tarot cards. She'd pretend to read his future, and he'd calm considerably. Not forever, of course, but long enough for her not to get hit. This, however, didn't sound like a threat to her. She knew what his threats sounded like. So as he left, she did nothing. Didn't call the police. Didn't try back at the mental health clinic. In the living room, he walked past one of his daughters carrying a weighted cloth bag slung over his arm and a bundle wrapped in a red plaid blanket. Goodbye, he said. I won't be back. And with that, he was gone. Where he went after that, Where he spent the next hour and a half is somewhat of a mystery. He was spotted by the Big Bear supermarket down the road, the post office next to the McDonald's, uh, one or two other places. Perhaps he was scoping out a good place to carry out his plan, some place with a lot of people and few places for them to hide. Maybe as he drove around, he spotted the McDonald's only a few hundred feet from his own home and remembered just how crowded the one he'd eaten at in Claremont must have been only a few hours earlier during the lunch break. Whatever the case, a few minutes before 4 p.m., the shooter would pull into the parking lot of the McDonald's at 522 West San Isidro Boulevard. He opened his black blanket wrapped bundle to reveal a hidden arsenal a 9mm Uzi semi automatic, a 9mm Browning handgun, and a Winchester pump action 12 gauge shotgun. He also slung a cloth bag over his shoulder, carrying hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon, enough to last him several hours of heavy shooting. The McDonald's was a popular place even on the slowest of days. This afternoon, there were approximately 50 people in the restaurant. Kids from the neighborhood would come just to play in the the restaurant's play area, regardless of the fact they didn't bother to buy any food. It was Also, one of the most recognizable restaurants one would see after sitting in the long line to cross the Mexican border from Tijuana, only a mile south on Highway 5. You cross into America, you're looking for American food. Look, there's a McDonald's. The Herreras' parents Ronald and Blythe, their 11-year-old son Mateo and Mateo's best friend Keith Thomas, decided to stop at McDonald's after going through the border crossing following a week-long trip to visit family in Mexico. Mateo and Keith had bonded over their shared love of Star Wars, and Blythe and Ronald took Keith, whose parents were divorced and whose mom worked long hours and had a lot of boyfriends she he didn't particularly like it seemed uh under their wing keith was eager to get some mcnuggets which had only been introduced by mcdonald's the year before the family brought their bought their food and settled in at a table near the entrance to the play area meanwhile a group of young women and girls stood near the front counter in the process of ordering their meals the ladies friends and family among them had just spent the day shopping and they developed quite an appetite, not to mention one of them was pregnant. 18-year-old Jackie Wright Reyes was not only eating for two and craving a fish sandwich, she was also carrying her eight-month-old son Carlos. Carlos had just been baptized the month before, and in only a few months there would be another baby to baptize. Jackie couldn't wait. According to her sister, she adored kids, and she would have had a dozen if she could. At almost precisely 4 p.m., a man entered the busy restaurant. Any other day, in any other outfit, he might have looked rather bland, an almost slight middle-aged man with glasses. In photos given to the press, he wears a velour shirt and smiles broadly for the camera. He looks like everybody's dad in the 80s getting wallet-sized photos taken at Sears. But today he wore his dark red shirt and those camo pants. What concerned people more, however, were the handgun in his hip holster, the Uzi, and the shotgun in his hand. He walked up to a 16-year-old boy who worked at the restaurant, John Arnold, and pointed the shotgun directly at him. Guillermo Flores, his assistant manager, yelled, Hey, John, that guy's going to shoot you! The shooter pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The gun had jammed. Arnold made a face and began to walk away. What a sick joke to play on someone, making you think they were going to shoot you. His manager, Nava Kane, walked toward Arnold, presumably to find out what was going on. She must have been frustrated to have come back from her honeymoon to her husband of only six weeks, only to deal with some weirdo like this. However, once the shooter got the shotgun unjammed, he fired it into the ceiling. He then turned the Uzi on Nava Kane, striking her below the eye. She died within minutes." at this point all hell broke loose the shooter began to rant about how everyone in the restaurant was quote dirty swines and said i've killed a thousand and i'll kill a thousand more referring to his time in vietnam he'd never actually been to vietnam a young man there with his wife and two young daughters victor rivera rose and tried to persuade the shooter to put his guns down and give up enraged the shooter fired repeatedly at rivera striking him fourteen times while screaming shut up shut up shut up over and over again his first targets after this were the group of women and girls standing by at the service counter now huddling together in fear he sprayed them with the uzi and fired on them with the shotgun in his other hand his first shot killed maria Colmonero silva with one shot to her chest Fifteen-year-old Imelda Perez tried to shield her nine-year-old sister Claudia, but, unfortunately, Claudia received at least nine gunshots in her tiny body. Imelda was wounded by a single strike to the chest. Jackie Reyes, even while pregnant, shielded her young cousin Aurora Pena. The shooter fired the Uzi at them, striking Reyes forty-eight times. Her family would later have difficulty finding an outfit to bury her in that would hide her practically destroyed neck. When Jackie fell, so did her son. Eight-month-old Carlos screamed and cried where he sat between his mother and the body of Maria Colmenera Silva, so the shooter quieted him with a single shot to the back. After this, he struck and killed trucker Lawrence Versluis before stalking toward the Herreras. After hearing the commotion, both Blythe and Ronald had pushed the boys under the table. Blythe covered Mateo, while Ronald protected Keith. Now they began to feel the shots. Ronald urged Keith not to move. What Keith didn't know was that every time he moved the shooter fired another shot into Ronald instead. But Ronald held on even as bullet after bullet entered his body. Keith fortunately only received a pair of wounds to the arm and shoulder. Blythe and Mateo were not so lucky. At one point they must have made an attempt to escape through the nearby doorway to the play area only a few feet away. Either way, both were shot multiple times in the head and died on the scene. Under another booth, Aristelfi Vuelvas Vargas covered her friend Guadalupe del Rio, who'd come to the McDonald's from Tijuana for the day to have lunch with her friend. Delria would be struck four times, but was not seriously injured. Later, she would be photographed being evacuated from the building, sobbing as she ran barefoot in a tight blue dress, blood splattered all over her legs. Aristelsea would get the chance to leave as well, but it was on a stretcher, on her way to the hospital with a gunshot wound to the head. She would be the only fatality who'd make it to the hospital at all. Outside, people were still approaching the McDonald's in spite of what was starting to become abundantly clear was happening inside. Lydia Flores pulled up to the drive-thru window with her two-year-old daughter in the car. She heard gunshots and saw a man inside waving a gun around when she looked through the window. She didn't pause to think. She threw her car into reverse, slammed her foot down on the gas, and flew backward until the car slammed into a fence. She would cower with her daughter inside the car until the siege ended. The Felix family, Astolfo, Maricela, and four-month-old Carla, arrived at the McDonalds and spotted the broken glass in the doors. Astolfo thought maybe they were renovating, and that the man stalking toward them was a handyman. Instead, the handyman shot all three of them. Maricela was hit in the face, arms, and chest. Astolfo in the head and chest. Tiny Carlito was struck in the head, and in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Sometime in the ensuing chaos, one of the parents, it depends who, uh, on the, what source material you look at, which one of them did this, passed Carlita off to a fleeing woman, begging, please save my baby in Spanish. The story of an injured baby was one of the first that the police would hear once 911 calls started pouring in at 4 p.m., The woman finally found a police officer who took her and the baby to the hospital, where she and the officer worked hard to stem the flow of blood from her injuries as he rushed them there. In the aftermath, the Felix family members were all in different hospitals. They would not see each other for weeks, but luckily they would see each other alive again. Others were not so lucky. At around this point in the shooting, the shooter toyed with a portable radio he'd brought with him and placed on the service counter. Perhaps he was trying to listen to see if there were any news announcements about the shooting yet. In the end, he simply left it on a music station, then went back to what he was doing. Outside the McDonald's, people were quickly beginning to realize the severity of what was going on. After stopping at the Yum Yum Donut shop down the street, three friends, Joshua Coleman, Omar Alonso Hernandez, and David Flores Delgado, all 11 years old, decided they wanted sodas, or maybe sundaes. The trio were inseparable. In fact, Omar and Joshua lived across the fence from one another. When they first met, they wanted to play together, but there was just one problem. Omar didn't speak English. So thanks to playing with Joshua, he started to learn. That day, the three of them rode around the neighborhood all day, enjoying the summer day off. The McDonald's was only a couple of lots down from the donut shop, but as they approached the side doors on their bikes, someone yelled out an unintelligible warning from across the street. The boys stopped to listen, trying to interpret just what the person was saying. It was just enough time for the shooter to spot them through the windows and fire. Bullets struck Joshua in the arm, leg, and back, and he collapsed to the ground, ending up on his back with his legs bent. David received multiple gunshots to the head and more than likely died instantly. Omar was hit multiple times in the back and fell onto his bike. Joshua heard him cry out for his mother, then vomit profusely before he could see life simply drain out of Omar. Shortly after the boys were shot, an elderly couple, Miguel and Aida Victoria, approached the side doors at the same side as Joshua and the murdered boys. Joshua, who was terrified the shooter would return to him to finish what he started, couldn't risk his own life to call out and warn the older couple. As Miguel reached out to open the door for his wife, the shooter appeared and fired a shotgun. It struck Aida in the face, killing her a wounded miguel crouched next to his wife wiping the blood from her face and shouting curses at the shooter the shooter responded by shooting him in the head as well behind the counter the still-living and uninjured employees cowered in one of the aisles hoping the shooter wouldn't hear them Albert Laos, who'd thought about skipping that day, would later say there was no way to jump the shooter, given the factors before him, the multiple weapons, the restaurant's layout, etc. Since Laos had played on the football team, if anyone could have tackled the shooter during this time, it was him. They tried to stay quiet, but a few of the women just couldn't stop sobbing. When the shooter appeared around the corner, one of the employees, Margarita Padilla, shoved fellow employee Wendy Flanagan toward an exit door in the rear left corner of the restaurant, urging her to flee. When Wendy got there, however, she claims it was locked. The restaurant did so to keep employees from stealing food. Frustrated, Wendy headed downstairs to a supply closet, where she was joined by four other employees and a woman with a baby. Upstairs, the shooter fired on the other employees. Margarita Padilla, Elsa Barboa Fierro, and Paulina Lopez, the girl who wanted to skip work because of a headache, were killed instantly. Albert Leos was shot multiple times, but he was still alive. A strong young man, he waited until the shooter left him alone, then began to crawl toward the reared exit. He then slid his way down the stairs and rapped on the closet. Terrified, those inside nearly didn't open it until he weakly identified himself. There was barely any room for the rest of them, but they managed to pull him inside as well. At the time, they had to stuff a piece of fabric in his mouth to keep his screams of pain from being heard by the shooter. The shooter fired every so often at rescue units as they arrived. Fire engines, ambulances, police cars. Now he began to go back through the rest of the restaurant, attempting to finish the job he started with those still alive. Teenager Jose Perez, groaned in pain, so Huberti shot him in the head. His friend, Gloria Gonzalez, and another woman, Michelle Carncross, all lie dead nearby. At the front of the restaurant, young Aurora Peña opened her eyes when she heard a lull in the shooting. When she did, the shooter stared right back at her. He flung a bag of French fries at her, then shot her multiple times once again. Fortunately, she survived. She would spend longer than any other survivor in the hospital. Sometime during all of this commotion, Hugo uh, Vasquez was also murdered as well. Now, Chuck Foster, a former Green Beret who worked as a sniper for the local SWAT team, would be positioned on the roof of the post office next door with his spotter, Barry Bennett. From their position, he could see bodies on the floor inside the restaurant, and the shooter take pot shots out out at the people and police officers cowering outside. Police hadn't been able to get a good shot since they got there, at least not one they trusted. The different types of guns the shooter brought with him added confusion to an already confusing situation. Why would one person need three different guns? How could only one person hold off so many? Police had multiple reasons to suspect they were looking at multiple adversaries in the McDonald's. However, the glass in the McDonald's windows didn't help either. It was tinted to keep out the sun, and laminated to prevent breakage, which might injure an employee or customer if one of the windows was broken. This meant trying to see through windows, which were like enormous sunglasses, still whole except for bullet holes, which spider webbed outward and created more obstructions. Many of the windows also had the golden arches etched into them, causing even more issues in seeing inside. And once the sun reached a certain level in the sky, the glare made some of the windows more like big mirrors. But Chuck Foster found a weak point, the side doors. The shooter blew out the glass at some point, and all that was left were the dark rectangular frames, divided in the middle by a single bar. It basically created a frame for Foster. His target simply had to walk into it. At one point, the shooter sat on the service counter, presumably to reload his weapons. His legs dangled in Foster's line of sight. When he got down, the shooter wandered through the doors, exactly where Foster needed him to be. He stood with his head and neck above the door frame, but his chest and torso framed by the door. It was 35 yards away. Foster took the shot. The bullet struck the shooter in the aorta. He was dead before he hit the ground. Once news went over the radios about approximately 5.20 that Foster took the shooter down, the police took immediate steps to evacuate any and all survivors from the building. Inside the kitchen, the walls were dented from bullets which ricocheted against the stainless steel covering that's all over damn near everywhere in one of these fast food joints. The fires beeped constantly. No one left to remove the eye baskets and shut off their timer alarms, Burgers were burning on the grill. They would find the group of survivors that were still hiding downstairs in the closet, and had to verify that none of them were any of the shooters, that, aside from the one who was lying dead upstairs. Once inside, the police handcuffed the shooter, regardless of the fact that he was clearly deceased. It was protocol it also made me think of a horror movie in that this is what you should do after you've killed the bad guy is restrain him with only the bodies of the dead left behind the police now set about one of their more difficult tasks creating a video to document the location of those who'd been killed the shooter his weapons and other items of note i will say this before i proceed over the next few minutes What I am about to describe is very graphic and upsetting. I myself did not know I was watching the actual police video until I could see what was clearly a dead body. This was no gruesome website I dug it up on. I didn't go to some deep web, reddit website looking for graphic McDonald's massacre police video shooting kind of thing. A great deal of the tape is shown in the documentary 77 minutes, which is available on Amazon and is one of the sources that I used for this podcast. The reason I tell you this is twofold. If you like to look through the sources for each episode, you should know before watching that episode what is ahead of you. And if you'd prefer to skip the next few minutes so you don't have to hear what the video contains, I certainly don't blame you at all. I'll give you a moment to skip ahead before I even start to describe the contents of the police evidence video. Okay, for all my listeners who are ready for it, here goes. The video starts with the police officers outside the McDonald's. All of the bodies outside are covered in yellow tarps. David Flores Delgado's body is the first described. The officer says he is a, quote, male Mexican, approximately 10 years old, wearing brown cords and a camouflage shirt. He then lifts the tarp to display him. David lies on his back, as the officer goes on to say, on the west sidewalk of the patio area. Next, the tarp over Omar Alonso Hernandez is lifted. He lies face down, looking away from the camera, partially on his bicycle. He is also described as a male Mexican, approximately 10 years old, but wearing brown shorts and a green t-shirt. The officer says he is lying on the ground next to a large amount of vomit. You can see multiple gunshot wounds to the back of his, well, to his back. After this, the officers move on to the Victorias. The tarp over Aida, the the, quote, female Mexican, is lifted so he can show she lies on her stomach and was wearing white pants and a white top. Miguel, the quote, male Mexican, lies curled up half on his side, half on his stomach next to his wife. He wears a blue shirt and blue shorts. All four bodies are on the same side of McDonald's. At this point, the documentary cuts to inside the restaurant. The camera pauses on a woman in a red shirt and light shorts facing down, uh, lying face down on the ground, and to the right of what looks like a young boy, I should say to the left of what looks like a young boy in a red shirt lying under a table on his back. Given their position in the restaurant just inside the door to the play area, this is probably Blythe and Mateo Herrera. The camera pans over to what looks like trash on the floor. Then it moves to the right, panning across a roll of tables. Toward the far end, someone in tan pants and a dark top, perhaps a jacket, sits in their seat but has slumped to lie across the chair to the person's left. The camera pans left. We hear the police speaking in what sounds like music, perhaps from the shooter's portable radio. We next see a white-haired older gentleman lying face down on the floor. At a booth just past him, a young woman lies slumped to her right across the booth's seat farthest from the camera. At least, it looks like a young woman. Uh, I do think this may be Jose Perez, and uh, it's very hard to tell one way or another. On the floor below this person, a woman is curled up under the table, her arm outstretched. Her fingers rest on the lips of the dead man lying next to her, upon whose lap her head rests. The camera turns toward the front of the restaurant, where we finally see the shooter. He is face down with his wrists handcuffed behind him, but he was clearly dead. He wore sunglasses, a dark red shirt, camo pants, and white sneakers with red stripes. Not far away from him lies a little girl dressed in pink with white sandals. She lies on her back, a bag of McDonald's takeout next to her extended left hand. The camera pans up to the counter above her where the shotgun and handgun have been placed. The camera cuts back to the shooter. It then turns a little bit to the right, where we can see a woman lying on her right side surrounded by dropped and discarded McDonald's products—fries, burgers, crumpled wrappers. As the camera moves forward, we see red on the other side of her. A baby lies on the floor on its back in a red sleeveless play suit. The woman, Jackie Reyes, his mother, rests her head and arm across the person lying next to her, presumably Maria Colmonero silva The baby, Carlos, lies between them. The camera moves to the left. It records the Uzi lying on the floor. It focuses in. Then it pans right, where a man in a blue shirt lies face down surrounded by broken glass. The camera cuts to the kitchen. Two female employees lie together on the floor, one on her back, the other resting her head on the other's left shoulder. If not for the blood, they might just be napping. The camera follows the length of their bodies until we see another young woman lying dead on her back just past them. This is the point where the video ends in the documentary. Looking into the shooter's past revealed some very disturbing facts. His parents divorced when he was just a small child. His father had bought a farm in Amish country, but his mother left the family to become a Southern Baptist street preacher instead. He decided he wanted to become a funeral director, so he got a degree in sociology from Malone College in Canton, Ohio, and a diploma from the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science. He got a job as an apprentice embalmer. And even for a job in the mortuary business, his co-workers thought he was weird. He preferred to be alone, and preferred to be alone with the bodies. He never did become a funeral director, however. He never paid the $15 in license fees, and besides, he simply didn't have the personality for it. A funeral director needed to be able to meet with bereaved families, and he just didn't have the social graces to pull that off. He did, however, get an excellent job as a welder. And even though he wasn't working as a funeral director, his time at mortuary school had yielded something. It was during that time he met Etna, whom he eventually married, and with whom he would have two daughters. Once, when a neighbor complained that his dog had damaged the neighbor's car, the man responded by shooting his dog in the head. He was known for things like this. Guns. Dogs. Sitting on his porch with a rifle on his lap. Just... Sitting there. When he was fired from his welding job, he finally reached his breaking point. He blamed the government, and specifically Reagan, for taking his money and ruining his life. So, without ceremony, he decided he'd have enough of America, sold his house, packed up the family, and moved them all to Tijuana, where they had once gone on vacation. A somewhat ironic move, considering the negative opinions he would later express about immigrants specifically Mexicans. He thought a move to another country would be a great idea, but he almost immediately regretted this decision. He got hassled when he rode his motorcycle there, and he drove his daughters across the border to San Isidro to go to school instead of allowing them to go to a Mexican school. It didn't take him long to crack and move his family back across the border to San Isidro. They moved into a cheap apartment complex on Avril Road, uh, an apartment complex whose residents were mainly Mexican or of Mexican descent. He tried to get a security guard job. The first place he applied immediately recognized his unstable personality, and they passed. The second did hire him, but soon realized they made a mistake. He was fired on July 10th. Many questions were raised in the aftermath about what had been done to stop the shooter, and what hadn't. First of all, why had it taken the police 77 minutes to finally take the shooter down? The first problem came when the dispatcher, confused about which McDonald's was involved, directed officers to a McDonald's on the other side of town. It was corrected quickly enough, but the police still lost precious seconds arriving at the correct McDonald's. The second problem came from the confusion that went with one man having three different weapons. Police were positive there had to be more than one man inside the building holding, building holding them off, and with the windows featuring so many obstructive qualities, the logos, the tinting, the gunshots, it was hard to see in and tell otherwise. There was also general confusion about what exactly this situation even was. Was it a hostage situation? Maybe a- robbery gone wrong? Were people actually being shot, or were those responsible simply firing random warning shots? In this day and age, we would simply assume it was a mass shooting. But in 1984, mass shootings were not nearly as plentiful as they are today. A man strolled through his Camden, New Jersey neighborhood in 1949 and killed 13 people. The shootings from the University of Texas at Austin clock tower in 1966 resulted in the deaths of 16 people at the time. One would later die of his injuries years, decades down the road. A young black man angry over racism in society shot nine people, five of whom were policemen, in new orleans in 1973 the i don't like monday shooting at cleveland elementary was 5 years old a mass shooting was just not something the police would have thought of first and foremost because of that it changed their decision making they knew people had been shot outside omar hernandez's body sprawled all over his bike for all to see made that abundantly clear but they had no idea what the situation was like inside for all they knew there could be far more people alive the shooter could murder should he become angered by their actions. When they did learn the identity of the man inside from Etna, who'd come down from her apartment after one of their daughters spotted the family's Mercury Marquis in the, in the McDonald's parking lot, they also learned some disturbing facts about him. He owned armor-piercing bullets and was easily adept at shooting accurately no matter which hand he used. They tried to get Etna to coax her husband to surrender. It didn't work. There were 175 police officers surrounding the McDonald's. There was only one shooter inside. He shot approximately 250 rounds over the course of his time inside the McDonald's. In 77 minutes, the police fired exactly five times. One of those was Chuck Foster's bullet to the shooter's heart second of all when the shooter's wife etna was told he was quote going hunting humans why didn't she call the police according to etna he said these sorts of strange things all the time they didn't mean anything not really he was just trying to get a rise out of her a lot of the time the problem with that defense is that Etna and her husband had been well-known to the authorities in, previ- in their previous hometowns in Ohio for his abusive behavior, like the, quote, messing up her jaw incident. Not only that, he'd called a mental health clinic the day before to schedule an appointment because he thought he was losing control of his mind. Yet when he literally said he was going out, quote, hunting humans, it didn't occur to her that maybe this time it wasn't just some stick joke. That said, she did point out that there is a stigma attached to calling a mental health facility at all, and the fact that he did call, even if he answered all of their filtering questions in the negative, should have been a warning sign to someone. And I will say this, just as someone who has mental illness, when you call a clinic and you're new, when you go to the doctors and they know you have a mental illness, when they uh, are questioning you about your illness, one of the questions that I can almost guarantee that they asked him when he called in that day was, do you feel like harming yourself and others or others? And he answered no to all of these questions. He clearly may have felt like harming himself or others. It doesn't mean they're telling you the truth when you call these sorts of numbers. They may not be telling the truth at all. Uh, It may be like when you go to the ER, you walk in with a small cut that needs a few stitches and a guy walks in with a leg that has been cut off. Obviously, he has priority over you, but if that cut suddenly develops some sort of strange complication that requires you to um, need more, you know, life or death care, then yes, now they're going to need to bring you in. It's really a matter of triaging. Who is it most, uh, who is most in, in danger? And the presentation that he gave to the mental health clinic was of someone who was not really in that much danger. But I would also like to add as somebody with mental illness, that can change on a dime he could be calm one minute and an hour later be a total mess so to be fair Edna herself did have a violent incident in her own past the pair had encouraged their daughters to resolve conflicts with other children by punching them on multiple occasions when Etna did so at a kid's party, the mother of the child who was targeted approached her to ask why she would tell her daughter to punch another kid. Etna responded by threatening to shoot her and pulling a 9mm handgun. Etna was taken into custody. The gun, however, was not. Which goes back to why Etna may not have called the police. She may not have trusted them after what happened when she was taken into custody over the previous incident, and perhaps didn't want her husband taken to jail if he didn't mean it. And to her, it was entirely possible he didn't mean it. He hadn't hit her or killed her and their daughters before he left. He just left. It would have been easy enough to talk herself out of it if he really wanted to go hunting humans there were three humans sitting in that apartment at that exact moment that he could have killed atna would later claim she stopped him from committing suicide years earlier and wished like hell in retrospect that she hadn't She would also later sue McDonald's for five million dollars. She did the same with Babcock and Wilcox, the former employer who fired her husband from his welding job in Ohio. Between the fast food he ate and the chemicals left behind from his welding job in his system, the homicidal tendencies which led to the shooting were triggered, at least according to her. Unsurprisingly, she did not win. The McDonald's massacre would be the worst mass shooting until the shooting at Luby's cafeteria in Killeen, Texas in 1991. Today, it is the fifth deadliest mass shooting in American history by a single shooter. It follows the Pulse nightclub shooting, Virginia Tech, Newtown, and Luby's in that order. It is more than likely it won't stay in that position forever. In the ensuing years, many survivors would find themselves dealing with depression, survivor's guilt, and PTSD. Albert Laos felt guilty about not doing more to save his coworkers, at least until a terrifying incident sometime later. One day he came upon a car on fire, and it took him a moment to realize the driver was still inside. Albert leapt into a- action, pulling him out of the burning car. The man suffered serious burns over more than half of his body, but at least he's still alive. Later, Albert Laos would join the police department, partially inspired by what happened in that McDonald's on a sunny summer day in 1984. I've seen Albert Laos in, in so many interviews at this point, and even back then, even as a young man, he's a very calm... Uh, young man a very well-mannered young man and the way the reason that I say this sort of thing is that it doesn't seem to have changed now that he is a police officer he still sounds like he did before he became a police officer it doesn't seem to have changed him for the worst or jaded him it's he seems like a genuinely nice guy and uh, one of the good cops The Felix family needed to rebuild. Baby Carla had been seriously injured and she and her mother shared the same long vertical scar right up their stomachs. Maricela became so terrified about her safety she panicked when the baby fell off the bed shortly after they all got out of the hospital. Maricela lost her left eye and the use of one hand. Several years later, Estolfo would be murdered in Mexico. While those years were difficult, Carla still grew up well and healthy. She remembers nothing of the incident, to the point where she can't even say exactly where she was shot. Keith Thomas, the boy who'd gone on vacation with the Herrera family and ended up protected from most of the shots by Ronald Herrera, was seriously traumatized by the shooting, as were all of the survivors. In the immediate aftermath, when they were still inside the McDonald's and they had not been yet evacuated. He reached out and grabbed Mateo's leg, trying to shake him awake. There would be no waking him. He would later have emotional breakdowns, resort to drugs or alcohol, express his rage and anger and violent screaming, and end up in psychiatric hospitals a time or two. He was flailing. He needed treatment. When he was finally tested for PTSD years later, he scored a 75 on the test. A, quote, very severe reaction is shown by a score of 60. For years he floated on a cloud of drugs and anger. It would take time and the birth of a son before Keith would finally begin to be able to heal. And from all that I've seen of him, he is so much better today. McDonald donor Joan Croc established a million dollar fund for the survivors and the victims to help with funeral costs and medical bills. A month after the tragedy, after a very short and extremely futile attempt to clean up and reopen the McDonald's, the building was torn to the ground. In 1988, a satellite campus of Southwestern College went up on the lot where the McDonald's once stood. Two years later, a monument designed by a former student uh, at the college, Roberto Valdez, was erected in front of the building. The monument features a plaque listing the names of those lost in the shooting and consists of rectangular columns of different heights to symbolize the varying ages of those lost in the tragedy. The columns themselves are white marble and they rise up into sort of a kind of a peak. It's very beautiful and the tops are flat so that this way people who are mourning their family members, people who are missing their family members can bring um, a plant or roses, flowers, whatever they want to do and leave those on top of the memorial. So every picture that I've seen of the memorial has flowers somewhere on it. It's actually a really nice way for... People to both remember those who died and for also for the families to be able to go to this memorial and leave their leave something for their loved ones today. If you drive westbound from the location where the previous McDonald's once stood on your way to the entrance ramp to Highway 5, you can still grab some chicken McNuggets on your way there. Another McDonald's now sits at 707 West San Isidro Boulevard, a fifth of a mile from where the original McDonald's stood. This particular disaster, I feel like every time I get to this part of the episode, I end up saying I've been waiting to do this for a very long time. And a part of the reason that I've been putting this one off is because it's very hard to find uh, substantial uh, source materials, sometimes. And with this, it's a lot of digging through newspaper articles and that sort of thing. There hasn't really been a a very good book written about it. There's a couple of books on Amazon, but they are clearly, you know, more likely have copies of the Wikipedia page just slapped into a book. Um... There is not really a documentary, or at least they thought there wasn't a documentary for a very long time. There's an 18-minute YouTube video that features some contemporary interviews with, uh, I believe it was Joshua Coleman and Alberto Leos and a couple of other people. It's it's very much, um, uh, it's very quick, but it's also kind of um, a, a little bit of a scare tactic uh, uh, video. It starts out with, you know, the American flag playing and the, the, the American flag flying and the national anthem playing and saying something like America's first in murder. And so it's a little, it's a little over the top um the documentary itself 77 minutes which is on amazon I- i'm torn about recommending it uh, like i said before there is that graphic video of the police video in the middle of it they don't really warn you it's coming they show clips of it beforehand and uh, there are uh, you know for somebody like me it was just kind of like oh there's there's the dead bodies um wow Um, it's, it it didn't really, it it surprised me, but it didn't shock me as much as, um, it it may trigger other people. And I really don't want you to watch it or to be able to skip past it if you want to watch that particular documentary. If you do, you're going to get to a point in the documentary where the director asks, asks I believe it's the director who's doing the interviewing asks a reporter did you know anything about the police video at that point you can start 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 fast forwarding (laughs) um there are other things that I don't really like about the documentary the the pros of the documentary are, are that it really does feature a lot of Uh, a lot of information that, you know, it's not, it's not false. It's true. You know, it's not BS or anything like that. Uh, There are a lot of interviews with, with people who survived and people who are related to the incident, Uh, people in positions of power, you know, the police, that sorts of things Uh, where I start to uh, lose. They start where they start to lose me. Um, is in certain ways in which the people who were in positions of power were being interviewed um it the documentary itself looks like it was made for five bucks uh that's not anything against it specifically most documentaries look like they were made for about five bucks um but the the camera has a bad habit of focusing on the interviewer who, like I said, I believe that's the director uh, at times when it should be really be focusing on the person who is being interviewed. Um, I don't really need to see the the interviewer uh, at all times you know and there are particular times especially when he's pushing the former uh, commander of the sWAT team to say well why did it take so long to go in there and what you know all of this I want to be seeing the reaction of that guy I don't want to see him answering the question I'm sitting there as somebody who watches a lot of documentaries basically saying I should be editing this documentary <laughs> because I the, half of the time you do not need to see this person person. person asking these questions another thing that i disliked was was the approach that he did have some of the time he does say in an interview that he he did have a little bit of a bias going into this and i believe when i say a little bit of a bias it's an understatement he really did not uh you know he was very angry about the 77 minutes he was very angry about the, the the fact that the mexican community was targeted he was angry about a lot of things and you can tell it in a lot of the questions that he asks and he's on on a lot of the time he's very uh, restrained Um, a lot of the time he is able to kind of ask a question without making it sound like he's also sticking you with a sword in the middle of of asking the question. And then a lot of the time he does kind of go overboard with his questioning, at least in my opinion, to the point where I started to feel sympathy for somebody I'm not supposed to feel sympathy for. That's not a good thing. And another thing that I, I really kind of disliked was that at the end of the documentary, right before the credits, there is an essay. It's, it's, it's basically an essay from the director saying things like you know we we have we still have all these questions and and all of the, all of these things that we asked and we still don't know this and we still don't know that and it's scrolling upward and to the point where you basically expect Star Wars to start right after it finishes scrolling it doesn't need to be there this is there's no reason for this this essay to be there if you are a good documentarian and you're a good director you don't need this there these questions are all asked answered or posed in the course of this particular documentary and therefore this does not need to be there i might suggest um i i'm kind of torn on uh, suggesting that anybody watch it i really think that um, if i was going to recommend a source that i used i would recommend delivered from evil by ron francell Uh, Delivered from Evil is a book about... Uh, different survival stories from different people. So there's one from the um, there's Territo Juparo, who was a little girl who uh, was on a boat with her family when the captain murdered the rest of the family and then sunk the boat. And she ended up uh, surviving on a life raft for several days before she was finally rescued. Uh, There's a survivor of the uh, University of Texas at Austin tower shooting there is a survivor of this shooting, and that's Keith Thomas. And you get to see just what affects these people in the aftermath. This kid so clearly has PTSD in the aftermath of this incident. And every description that you can see up to the point where he's actually tested for PTSD I mean, even somebody who has no experience with it can go, that kid's got PTSD. Why hasn't he had a therapist? Um, he, you know, he survived when his best friend did not. When his best friend's mom, who was, you know, sort of this hippie earth mother type who t- took her t- took him under her wing, she didn't either. He, you know, he already had this very difficult family life and so many things. And I, I just really feel like this story of, what happened to Keith Thomas, who's now Keith Martins, um, in the uh, years since then is is a very empowering story. And so I would suggest reading Delivered from Evil. It's, it's a wonderful book anyway. Um, I, I know that you're probably expecting that I would be sitting here talking about the mental health issue of um, what happened in regards to this. I think it's pretty clear that there are a lot of issues with how people responded to him, um, how Etna responded to his exhibitions of uh, what was clearly a breakdown to anybody else, but not to her, how the clinic responded uh, to him. Um, there's only so much that that these people can do, however, and that's basically because there's only so much information that they're being given. Um, the shooter never really he never really opened up. He was not that kind of person. and so the fact that he doesn't open up for this and doesn't it doesn't tell these people um what they need to hear to say something's clearly wrong he needs to be admitted to a hospital or something like that um there are plenty of people with mental health issues who might say at a certain point you know what i don't think i feel very good you know i I can't get any attention i can't go to the doctors for a couple of days and i need help now and nobody seems to be listening i'm going to go to the er but as etna pointed out it's it's hard enough to call a, a mental health center and say that you're having an issue to be somebody who's never admitted to something like this before being a very stubborn person like like this the shooter is described and to just be able to admit you know what yeah I need to go to the ER uh, um, if nobody else is going to help me I'm going to go to the ER and they'll help me um, that's difficult um, there have been times that I have gone to the ER, not to say that I don't uh, uh, feel mentally well at the time, but because of, of conflicts with uh, mental health um, medication and that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, just that much can be difficult. Just It can be really hard to go in there and say, you know what, I took a few too many of, of this particular Um, medication and to say I might have overdosed intentionally um, or I might have overdosed accidentally you you even that much is difficult you have to admit certain things and and they can be very very difficult to admit so a lot of this boils down not to the fact that so many people missed that he was broken but that he simply didn't he simply didn't reveal that he was broken um not in a way that was any different than a lot of americans um behave who have no mental illness in this day and age and in 1984 so um i don't know what i'm doing next episode but i just really really wanted to get this episode out of the way (laughs) and get this done um uh, I'm going to see what I'm, um, I've am i got going for me. Um, may take a little break for a little bit, uh, just because I've done two episodes in about a week. So um, we'll see what, it's, what happens. But um, until next time, stay safe.